Welcome everyone back to Association Rockstars, where we hear about the journeys and insights of some amazing association executives and partners who are building the association industry of tomorrow. My name is Lowell Applebaum. I'm the CEO of Vistacova, where we partner with organizations on strategic facilitation. I'm excited to have with me today, Janice Lachance, JD, FASAE. She's the Executive Vice President for Strategic Leadership and Global Outreach for the American Geophysical Union. It's a professional society of more than 118,000 Earth and space scientists that work in 142 countries. Her work at AGU includes management of the renovation of the organization's 62,000 square foot headquarters into a net zero energy consumption building, the first renovation of its kind in Washington, D.C. Previously, she has served as the CEO of the Special Libraries Association and was in the Clinton administration as the cabinet level director of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Janice, we're so excited to have you with us today. Thanks, Lowell. It's great to be here with you. Uh, we have gotten together and had many conversations, and I think of the many questions I've asked you, I'm not sure I've ever asked you the question we like to start with, which is, of course, all of our rock stars come to the table with amazing skill sets and experiences and perspectives. And as you reflect on your own, we like to frame these as superpowers, right? Places that you bring excellence that helps you to promote the industry and drive it forward. What do you think one of your superpowers are? Great. Well, my biggest superpower actually I had when I was at OPM and I had the power to actually close the government when there was bad weather in Washington, DC. So talk about a superpower, right? Yeah. But over time that's evolved because I've changed uh, jobs, changed, ind changed industries. And I think now what I'm really good at is synthesizing the patterns I see and overlaying them with the relationships I have with people and being able to see over the horizon a bit. It's not um, something I can do all the time, but I think this ability to synthesize what's going on in the environment around me, applying the knowledge I have of the people that I'm working with or partnering with really lets me see into the future. And that helps me cope with a lot of things, helps me with planning, it helps me with getting my work done. Well, prognostication is something that I think we all can use a little bit more of uh, so that we can not just be reactive, but proactive. So um, I actually have a name for it, Lowell. Oh, tell me, what's the name? It's called, it's not very, it's not gonna fit on a bumper sticker, but I call it, perceptive vision. So I can perceive things that are coming. So I don't know, it might be too long a word for my cape. Well, you're, you're, it's not too long a word for the cape, but you're, you're, I can't not ask. All right. So from where you sit today, if you enact your perceptive vision, what do you see for what's ahead for the association industry based on all that's happening in the world? So I actually think that once we get over this hump of figuring out new ways of doing things, thinking about how we maintain our values in this atmosphere, that people are really going to come to rely on their associations and their professional societies even more than they do now. We're all isolated. Yeah. Uh, we're sitting in our homes, looking at screens, um, my scientists, for example, at AGU are shut out of their labs. They can't get out to the field to do their research. And 
so they're going to need an organized structure to help them move forward, to find a way to connect with their colleagues, to find a way to keep their skills up to date. And so I really think if we can get past this transition to virtual meetings and all of these things, and I'm not minimizing those, those are huge. Yeah. But if we can get past that, I think it's actually going to be easier to sell the value of an association than it has been in a long time. We've been on this trend where we can do things ourselves, we can set up our own networks, there's all sorts of social media. That's now, I think, going to see a little bit of strain, and I think people are going to look for a place that they respect, that they trust, that can vet, vet the content that they see, and uh, that answer to those questions are going to be an association. You know, it's so interesting because uh, obviously there's been a, a large response by many organizations in the field about how do we provide value in a virtual setting, right? What you referred to the virtual meetings, right? And the transition therein. Uh, yet what you're speaking to with your perceptive vision is the need to provide connection in a virtual mm -hmm. setting and association's essential role. Uh, anything from your own you know, life that you've lived within this space or within your professional journey that you're like, you know, if an organization is going to set itself up well to be a source of connection, a relationship when we live in isolation, that individuals or organizations should be doing? So it seems to me that they have to establish trust, that that's a fundamental, and that they have to decide on their values going forward. It's, it sounds odd because you'd think I might say, well, you have to make sure you have all the technology so that people can connect. You know, that's doable. You know, you might need an investment, you might need some outside expertise, but that's all manageable. What you need is to be a trusted source where people know if they meet someone through you, that that person is legitimate, that that person has something to offer. And in my mind, that really comes down to an organization building trust with its members and living its values, then they'll be willing to rely on you. They'll be willing to look to you for resources, uh, whether it's content, whether it's other people or colleagues. So in the role that you play or in the previous roles that you've played, how have you as a leader modeled building trust? How have you modeled that for the staff that's worked under you? How have you brought that to organizations as an intangible, if you will, quality, but an essential one clearly for success? Mm -hmm. uh, transparency. You know, I let people know what I'm thinking. I let people know what is going into a decision that's going to be made. I give them a voice. I let yeah. them express their opinion. But, you know, I try to avoid that Wizard of Oz role where you're behind the curtain and you're making things happen. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not, but people don't understand how or why it's occurring. Yeah. It seems to me that uh, being open, being transparent, using that open door style of management where everybody can walk up to you and you welcome it and you really want to hear from others and you build in a feedback loop every time, whether it's someone who works for you or someone you work for or work with, 
make sure that they know they can always come back to you with questions, with comments, with um, new ideas, new opportunities. That to me is the fundamental part of trust. And then don't BS them. Excuse my language. <laughs> Excuse your acronym. You're fine. Yes, I, I decided not to say it out loud. But, you know, kind of establish a no BS zone that you're yeah. going to work with people honestly, openly, and make that commitment to them at the very beginning and live it every single day. You know, the, the commitment you're talking about, which sort of both integrates a high level of emotional intelligence uh, and, and one of being true to your word. Now, I'm wondering in your own professional journey, did you see this demonstrated along the way? Like, how did you learn this, right? Was this something natural? Was this something you had supervisors show you? Like, where, where did you identify this as a priority to grow it as a skill? So I've, I've had the opportunity to work in a number of different jobs. Uh, I worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, where trust is at a premium. And I also uh, went to work for a labor union and the Clinton administration. I've always been in situations where I had to rely on others to be successful and where I was integral to others' success. And to me, there was only one way to do that. And that was to establish trust with people. It's, there are very, very few of us who are just going to be so terrific at what we do that we don't need others to move forward and we don't need others to advance our goals. I also found trust to be really important because I don't like small goals. I like the big ones. I like to think about the possibilities of what could be Lowell and what we yeah. could do. And that always, always needs a lot of people. So that was where it came from. You know, the idea of the big goals and what could we do, uh, at least for me, that resonates a lot with the idea of the mission vision basis of our associations, right? Mm -hmm. the, the big impact we're trying to make. In your, in your own journey, wouldn't you realize that you know, positions within the association world may not just be a position, but actually a profession that you want to have a longer tie with? Yeah. It didn't take me long. Um, I, after I left the Clinton administration, um, I remember my dad, who I adore, said to me, well, that was the peak of your career. And I, it's all down. It's all downhill from here. All downhill from here. And I was like, is when do when do you become encouraging again? When do yeah. you? And that was a real um, sort of a wake up moment for me in a way, because even though I didn't really accept his premise, I realized that I had to do a lot of work to think about next steps. And I broke down the job. What did I love about my job working for President Clinton? And then I went out and looked for those characteristics. I didn't look for the job. I didn't look for the industry. And I found associations. And I knew right away, right? I wanted to work with really smart people. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to work in a mission-driven organization. And I wanted the opportunity to improve people's lives. So what does that sound like? That sounds like it might be the federal government, but it also might be associations. And when I found that world, when I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work in that environment, I thought, this is it for me. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, you have a, a nice 
mashup there between what feels like a West Wing theme with, uh, <laughs> with a build into the association world that I find inspiring. West Wing, oh my gosh. <laughs> those were the days. And those were. The, so is that's what you saw in the field, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, and whether you name names or not, you know, the leaders that you found in the association field, coming out of government, coming out of, you know, national leadership, state leadership, when you came to association leadership, are there leaders that you met along the way that like inspired you or made you feel like this is going to be something meaningful? And what about them made you feel that way? Oh, there were, there've been so many, um, Arlene Pytranton, Peter O'Neill, Paul Pomerantz, Clark Price, you know, so many of the hall of fame, let's say, um, of this, um, of this industry. Um, I was very, very lucky. I, I realized that I did not know everything about associations when I joined up with one. And so I made it my mission to try to immerse myself in it. And I was fortunate enough to um, go on the Center for Association Leadership Board, which later merged with the ASAE board. And there I met so many extraordinary people who were thoughtful, who were passionate, who really cared about um, what, how this profession and these organizations are shaped and care for their future. I mean, and I made long-term friends, Susan Robertson, uh, Chris McEntee, who I had the privilege of going to work for um, a few years ago, uh, really thought leaders. And I just, made a point of being a sponge whenever I was around them. I remember um, sitting in Velma Hart's hotel rooms at during um, retreats and meetings and board meetings and just solving all the world's problems. And it, that's what the association community does for you because it kind of merges both your professional life and your personal relationships. And so you've got the opportunity to learn all the time. The, uh, the idea of sitting with a colleague who's smarter than you, right, or who just as passionate, and you're like, we can solve the world's pop problems. We just had another hour together. Yeah. It's, right? it's an experience I've had as well. And I think it actually probably speaks to the very nature of you know, the, the industry we work in. I mean, along your own journey is there are moments that you step back to say like this is this is why we have associations yeah and um one of those reasons uh you know you can look behind me uh i am not standing outside in front of the agu headquarters but um the agu board uh, several years ago now made the decision to do something that had never been done before and a lot of boards I know are risk averse. A lot of them are very, very nervous about doing this sort of thing. But the AGU board made a decision that they were going to walk the talk and live out their mission, which is science for the benefit of humanity. And rather than just take on a regular old renovation of their kind of old and shabby office building, they decided it could be a model. And it would have been cheaper to do it the regular way. It would have been faster. There would have been less risk, but they said, go ahead. We need to show the world that this can be done. 
And that's what we're in the midst of now. And it's extraordinary. We run tours, it's open to the public. The built industry is in and out of there all the time, learning lessons, talking to us about what we're doing. And hopefully we are going to change the world. The idea that, uh, that there's risk that we need to take if we're actually going to make world impact level changes is mm -hmm. something I think that resonates, especially in a time when whether or not you want to take risk, many organizations are being forced to take risk. Uh, I'm, I have to ask, you know, time's starting to get short, as you advise leadership or as you approach risk taking, is there some general philosophy you take in terms of like how to evaluate like the right risks to take or not? Uh, I like to be mission driven and then, and then layer on the realities of the world, right? You, you know, yeah. you could not have done this if they hadn't been very, very prudent about their finances over the years. They have a, they're in a strong financial position. A private developer never would have done it because yeah. they to roll over their, um, their money very, very quickly and they need to see a return on investment, AGU has a little bit of a longer time and they're motivated by different things. So I think when it comes to risk, leave the money out of it for at least the first couple of steps. Look at whether it makes sense for the organization and then add the money into the equation, add the finances, add the staff resources and see if it's possible. But we don't move the needle if we don't take risks either in our associations or in our personal lives or our professional lives, you gotta do it. You gotta bite the bullet. Well, say having to be the person that makes the call of whether or not the government and then schools, at least in the local area, close every day sounds like a, a risky place in itself. I imagine there's a hordes of school-aged children that were both praising and not praising your name, yeah, depe I was, depending I was on the not call. not very popular. I was not very popular. Well, popularity isn't always the only measure that we should go That's over. right. That's what uh, But in, in the course of our conversation, whether it's taking risk, whether it is transparency, you know, whether it is being willing to be a voice of leadership, uh, any closing thoughts for those that either are or, you know, aspire to be future rock stars, right, that we need them to be rock stars in terms of as they continue to pursue their career, what should be their true north? What, sh what should they focus on? Mm -hmm. I, this is, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this, I'd be rich, but it, it's finding your passion, but also it's finding a group of people who want to advance what you believe in. And I would say, don't just take a job where your moving paper or um, just in a, in a role where you're not making those real big advances. Look for those opportunities, take the risks, get smart about the risks, yeah. but take the risks both for your association and for yourself and your profession. Well, it's clear that you've had a professional journey of passion along the way. Uh, I would never think to say that your father is wrong, but I'll say from at least our conversation, I'm not sure that you've you've hit peak yet. I think you're still still on the climb. Uh, to, Great. To Looking forward to that. Things. Uh, 
for the moment, thank you so much for spending time and joining us today and sharing your, your story and your insights with us. Great, thanks, Lowell. And I wanna, of course, give a, a big thanks to Amy Hager, who behind the scenes and on the Facebook and social media pages is making all the magic here happen in the Association of Rockstars. And uh, most importantly, thank you to everyone who tunes in, contributes, uh, puts in conversation pieces, gives us insights and recommendations for future rock stars. We're building this together. Until next time, Association Rockstars.